Welcome to the Ministry Collaborative Podcast, a series of honest conversations about opportunities, challenges, and joy in ministry today. These episodes are inspired by interactions with ministry leaders from across the country as they explore possibilities, learn from broad perspectives, take risks, and cultivate candid discussions that generate disruptive creativity. Hey friends, this is Adam Borneman with the Ministry Collaborative, and today I'm pleased to be with David Zoll. David is the founder and director of Mockingbird Ministries, editor-in-chief of the Mockingbird blog, and co-host of the Mockingcast podcast. He's also an author and a pastor and lives in Charlottesville with his wife and three boys, serves on the staff of Christ Episcopal Church. David, thanks so much for spending a few minutes with us. I'm psyched to be here. Thanks for having me, Adam. Yeah, I'm really glad to have this conversation with you because I've been a follower of the Mockingcast for a while and over the years have been reading some things from the blog that you all compose. And uh, I've always had things to chat with you about. Today, we'll, we'll focus especially on your most recent book, Low Anthropology, but I think it'll take us in some other directions too that are relevant to the work that you are doing. Can you say a little bit about where you are and how you got there? Well, sure. Well, geographically right now, I'm in central Virginia, and I got here through a very roundabout way of sort of I worked as a youth minister for a while. I mean, I graduated from college not knowing what I wanted to do, liberal arts person, worked in youth ministry for five years, then started Mockingbird with some friends. We were looking to do something creative around emphasizing the grace of God as it relates to, you know, everyday life. We started at New York City. The local stuff we did didn't get as much traction, as nearly as much traction as sort of the national things we did. And so all of a sudden, here I am 15 years later running what is called a platform um, and enjoying it. So Mockingbird does all sorts of things. I mean, a little bit like the Ministry Collaborative podcasts, and we do conferences, and we have networks, and we have a print magazine. And it's been a wild ride, but also a really fun one. Yeah, I've been a, a reader of the Mockingbird stuff for a while, and I certainly commend that to listeners. I think you all do some of the most interesting and instructive interpreting of ministry in our culture. And I think a lot of times you can say that, and it's either one or the other, but I think you all have this really nice balance of just how you talk about the witness of the gospel in our world. And you've done that in a couple of ways, too, with what you've written a couple of years ago, or maybe it was even longer than that. I can't tell with pandemic time. <laughs> but you wrote a book called Seculosity, which I really enjoyed and recommended to others. And in some ways, I think what you just wrote, Low Anthropology, almost seems like volume two of Seculosity. <laughs> to me, I saw a lot of common threads. So can you say a little bit about what's prompting your writing and your thinking, particularly with Low Anthropology, but even more broadly? Sure. Well, there's a couple different things. I'd say, first of all, as someone involved and engaged in Christian ministry, I am invested and interested and excited and passionate about making the gospel intelligible to regular people, to modern people, at least people like me or people that I can identify with. And I find that that's easier said than done. And so my feeling is that in my own work in ministry, I have a lack of resources to give people who are unfamiliar, who maybe didn't grow up in the church or grew up in a very different type of church than the one where I currently serve. And so partly that's what inspired this book was just an attempt to get a few steps back from where we normally begin the conversations about religion. There are like several, I guess, 
cultural conditions or emotional phenomena that I find personally painful and that I experience in myself, and that I wanted to see what resources the Christian faith, what I could marshal from my tradition and from my theology. And so the conditions this time were burnout and uh, loneliness, also a fair amount of perfectionism. If last time it was in seculosity, I was thinking more about righteousness and enoughness and a kind of uh, misdirected or at least sort of the religious impulse gone wild, the sense that you were li- we were living in a world with so much demand that felt existential in nature, but no grace, no mercy. We'd kept all the bad parts of religion and not any of the good parts. And so that was the cultural conditions last time. This was much more, yeah, I wrote the book during the pandemic, mostly. And so wrestling with loneliness in myself and what I see around me, mm-hmm. but also the kind of burnout phenomenon that it afflicts not just healthcare workers, but millennials in the hustle culture and mothers of young children and men in their 50s and, you know, middle schoolers. I don't know what you have, have you, but there was a sense in which we had lost any compassionate understanding of our own limitation or mixed motivations in life. And I thought I could bring to bear some Christian anthropology or understanding of human nature in a way that maybe could relieve a little bit of that burden or if nothing else, make a case for why belief in God would be compelling and urgent in today's world. And actually, you know, good news. (laughs) And actually very good news. I mean, I think it's not branded that way, shall we say? So Mm -hmm. I'm always trying to convey the comfort that I find, the consolation and the hope that I find in my faith and in the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I that's what I find most exciting about writing today. So that's what I was trying to do to reclaim a little bit of, why would this be good news? Well, it's not good news unless you're a person who sort of has real needs and cannot summon redemption on their own, or it runs into all sorts of self-imposed and externally imposed limitations and obstacles. And let's face it, sin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the timing of all this seems so profound to me because it seems not just based on personal experience and anecdotally, but also when we look at the statistics and trends, it seems like the last few years with the pandemic and other multi-layered crises that we have hit once again this moment in our culture where we are really coming face to face with our own limitations. Hmm. It's really throwing up a a mirror to our sense of self-progress and that we could arrive at something that would finally fix everything. And of course, you know, in American history, we seem to have these once every 50 or so years (laughs) and the pandemic seems to be that. So what do you sense about the time that we're in and how what you're thinking and writing about is particularly appropriate for it. Yeah, I think the pandemic certainly drove a lot of that home, that I can control a whole lot less than I thought I could control. Everyone being so extremely uncomfortable as just a human creature with the sense that a global pandemic, you have no agency in that. All of a sudden, you're being literally kept in your house, and you don't have decision-making ability, and that really runs against the grain of a kind of a American or Western or simply just maybe human idea that I'm calling the own shots and I'm master of my own ship. One of the reasons I wrote the book is I sensed a tremendous cultural hunger for something akin to a more honest anthropology, a more honest, and by anthropology I mean operating view of human nature. Mm -hmm. When I was seeing like the rise of books about vulnerability, or as a buzzword even, I generally think some of those books are good, they're a mixed bag like anything, 
But what I saw when I saw people flocking towards the work of like Brene Brown or something was just folks who were laboring under an enormous burden of perfectionism and feeling like they're the only one who is barely hanging on or making it up as they go along or the only one who really, you know, that imposter syndrome, just I heard it everywhere. Mm. And so I saw this desire for a permission or an allowance to be human to be encouraging. And I wanted to sort of talk about that. I always felt it never went quite far enough in terms of it's not enough in my mind, in my experience, to simply be honest or to be transparent. I'm also looking for love. (laughs) I'm also looking for some kind of absolution or forgiveness. That's where I wanted to go with low anthropology. David, I'm really glad you talked about what you were sensing in the self-improvement culture that we're in and the drive towards authenticity and that it is really a mixed bag. What struck me, especially about the pandemic, was that it seemed like there was at the same time this coming to terms with our limitations as a society and at the same time this accelerant on now is the time to (laughs) self-improve. There was always this contradiction of like, we can improve, this is our moment, I have time to better myself and to become who I've always wanted to be and it seems like there's things out there that we cannot control and they're going to limit us no matter what. So I'm struck by the juxtaposition of those things. Oh, totally. You could say we were struck by the limitations for about five minutes, at which point we were like, <laughs> oh, Shakespeare wrote King Lear during the, his pandemic. What are you going to do? How, how are you going to, what, what sort of uh, exercise regime or project around the house? How are you going to fix her upper time? It was, it was an American kind of self-improvement only. It's pretty impervious to reality. <laughs> But it's also the truth of where people live in the middle of the night. You know, you wake up and you think, oh my gosh, I I need something more than my own internal resources. I need help. If there's hope to be found, it's got to be found in either other people, more communal living, or as a Christian, I believe it's the real engine of goodness and grace in the world is God. Yeah, it's interesting. It's just now occurring to me as you say that, that there's been so much cognitive dissonance around I need to self-improve, and now is that moment, uh, as you said, that lasts for five minutes. But at the same time, I need to be more authentic and vulnerable. And there's got to be a moment that those don't go together very well, and I imagine (laughs) that that causes a lot of us some undue stress. You have a couple of phrases in your book that I really like that get at this. One that I see certainly in my own life and in the lives of those around me, things like the arrival fallacy (laughs) and the if-only route. We always seem to have the sense that if I could just get to this next thing in my life, then everything would smooth out. And we know rationally that's not true, but we just keep living with that in mind. Could you say a little bit more about the arrival fallacy and the if-only route? Sure. Well, these are ways we get around what I call low anthropology. And a low anthropology is simply a sober and honest estimation of human limitation, conflictedness, and self-centeredness. Like the, the idea that there is a dark side to human nature, including your own. So I identify two ways we resist that. And the arrival fallacy is a popular one. It's basically if when I get the promotion, when I arrive, then I will feel better. (laughs) When I marry so-and-so, when I get to, when my church grows to a certain level, I don't know, well then 
I will be happy. And I talked about this sort of as a form of the if-only route. And Mm -hmm. I used the example of a friend of mine who moved every two years for his entire adult life. And you got the sense he was searching for a geographical solution to his own problems, his own ennui and depression. And we joke with him, and it's very common, shall we say, to instead of looking inside at what is going on, we locate the source of our problems out there. And if that's the case, well, then I can control it and I can just move zip codes or <laughs> I can find a new spouse or I don't know what it is, but there's a drive to, and it doesn't mean those things can't improve your lives, by the way, but I think that the if only route tends to be a ladder to nowhere because it's searching for an external solution to an internal problem. Yeah, uh, it's funny. You just reminded me of in Jerry Seinfeld's last stand-up special. He has this really sort of profound and funny comment about life is mostly just thinking that if I were somewhere else right now, I'd be happier. If we go to dinner, then we'll be happy. And then you get to dinner, I'm ready to go home. And no one's ever really just happy where they are. And he extrapolates from that into the way you just described. And I thought, you know, there's a lot of truth to that, that if we could just get to this other place with these other people, then we would arrive at something better. And it's such a a lie on some level. I, I do think, like you said, there's some cases in which certainly, you know, you can make a change in life or make a move in life, then it proves things. But the sense in which that we count on that seems to be problematic. Right. It reminds me too of, you write a good bit, especially early on in your book about doubleness. Mm-hmm. It struck me as a really just very simple concept, but one really important for this work. So perhaps you could share a little bit about what you mean by doubleness and how it sort of undergirds most of your thinking. Sure. Doubleness is really another euphemism for conflictedness. It's kind of the inside out, like the Pixar movie, that understanding of human motivation. You could call it from a biblical point of view, it's the Roman 7 experience of life. I know what I should do, and I, I there's a discrepancy between should and want, between desire and kind of knowledge. And that is often a point of pain in our lives. Like, our agency is limited. The case study of addiction is the great example of this. Doubleness understands that people are primarily emotional creatures. Mm -hmm. It's sort of Augustinian in the sense that, like, you can't really understand a person until you know what they desire. A desire drives the train, and then we sort of justify things afterward. I mean, again, this is an unburdening, and I think it allows us to have understanding, at least, and possibly compassion for people whose behavior strikes us as bizarre. Doubleness would say, well, they're not—sometimes our motivation is opaque to us. Sometimes it's just—we're tied in all sorts of knots, some of which of our own making. And so misbehavior, problematic actions— seldom boil down to just a lack of information. Mm. It's much more complicated than that. And certainly people in ministry, if you don't understand this about your congregation, you're going to just come to resent them. Like, why won't they do what I tell them? Because they're just like you. (laughs) They are a jumble of things. And some Mm. days it's enough to be told, hey, drive in this lane rather than that lane. But a lot of times it's like, I can't just decide not to be angry or I can't just decide to forgive someone or love someone that I don't. Yeah, that's a really helpful description of just where we are in our culture and it's where the internal and external dynamics that we experience as human beings. I love what you say about pastors realizing too that it's because they're just like me. That's the problem. (laughs) It raises for me this question of grace. The subtitle of your book, Low Anthropology, is The Unlikely Key to a Gracious View of Others and Yourself. Mm -hmm. So if I could put it this way, what's the gracious remedy for this diagnosis we're describing for the moment we're in? 
Well, a couple things. I mean, I think certainly just the recognition of our limitations, our doubleness, our self-centeredness gives us a an accurate foothold from which to love other people and ourselves. If you're not constantly expecting people to be different than they are, then you actually might love them. But it also, it's an invitation. If I'm limited, then that's an invitation to fellowship and to collaboration and to friendship. If I'm self-centered, I need the help of other people, but I also need forgiveness. That becomes a primary need of the human heart. And so for me, any religious framework that does not address people as they actually are is going to ring hollow. And yet what we have in low anthropology is not only a doorway, to compassion and sympathy and unity and curiosity, it opens the door to faith and to grace and ultimately to God, because that's the real answer to the human predicament as a Christian. I believe that God is the true answer. The lower your anthropology, the higher your Christology will be. Amen. And David, thank you so much for what I consider a really great introduction to your book and also just some great analysis of the culture that we're inhabiting I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you for listening to the Ministry Collaborative Podcast, a project of the Macedonian Ministry Foundation. The Ministry Collaborative nurtures a national network of pastors and congregations committed to faithful, creative, and courageous engagement in their communities. Our producer is Marthane Sanders. To find out more about our work of cultivating leadership that makes a difference in congregations and communities, visit our website at www.ministrycollaborative.com dot org.